Hello, everyone, and welcome to Morning Q. My name is Quentin Wilkie, and I'm your host. And this is the pilot episode of my first podcast. So welcome, and bear with me. Um, the show is basically uh, going to revolve around uh, global, national, uh, state, and local politics. Uh, with an independent left-wing spin, uh, no issues off the table, and uh, I plan on having guests from across the political spectrum join us uh, to have a little bit more diversity as uh, as the years go on, at least in my 27 short years of life. Uh, Things are just getting more extreme on both sides of the political spectrum. And so I think it's important that we don't have an echo chamber. And while this is a leftist podcast, uh, we just keep it real and realize that, you know, everyone has different views. And uh, we need to have an open discussion about a lot of different uh, policies and a lot of different uh issues that uh really matter and affect americans and a whole lot of other people so uh for our first episode i'm basically going to cover uh the housing crisis so housing discrimination uh the uh, feasibility of a UBI or a, universe, or a universal basic income, which was uh, has been gaining popularity and was uh, really elevated in the 2020 uh, Democratic primary from Andrew Yang. Uh, we're going to talk about critical race theory and uh, sort of like the right-wing talking points around it and how uh, it's really damaged uh, just our education system in so many states, especially in red states where Republicans uh, have a majority control. Uh, we're going to discuss the war on drugs, abortion rights, and LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, so for now, I plan on having... Uh, one episode a week, uh, and I do plan on, uh, you know, being consistent with that. Uh, so with that, we can get started uh, with face the facts and having a real discussion about uh, housing discrimination. So. Let's go back to last August when uh, the COVID pandemic was kind of winding down and a lot of people, especially in more populated areas, uh, were having a lot of issues finding a place to live, and then also finding common ground with their landlords. And uh, there were a lot of people who uh, 
had a difficult time, uh, you know, paying for their bills, paying for their rent, paying for their utilities, etc., uh, to the point where the Supreme Court has actually issued a 30-day extension on uh, on Biden to, uh, you know, let people stay in their houses, basically, stay in their homes. So they weren't uh, the eviction moratorium, basically. Uh, so we're going to talk about that and uh, the opportunity, too, that was lost in that moment. Because uh, at the end of the day, uh, the, uh, the wealthy and uh, the uh, powerful won that fight. We did w win a couple battles, so uh, we're still we're still engaged in fighting uh, for real housing justice in America and making sure that uh, nobody's sleeping out on the street. Uh, it's pretty ridiculous that in the richest nation in the world, uh, we have people sleeping out on the street. Uh, it's an embarrassment. It's an international embarrassment. Uh, but a little, let's go a little bit further uh, into the eviction moratorium of last summer and the significance of that extension and the reason why we got that extension in the first place. So uh, in late August of 2021, uh, the, the conservative Supreme Court uh, basically ended the eviction moratorium uh, after the 30-day extension that, uh, you know, after <laughs> uh, Congresswoman uh, Bush slept out and uh, protested outside of uh, the, the steps of uh, Capitol Hill, uh, action was taken on behalf of Democratic leadership and uh, you know, the Supreme Court followed suit because it was a uh, important issue that you know people stay in their ho their homes during a uh, deadly pandemic. Uh, but after that, we didn't really see much, and uh, you know, there's a lot of lost opportunity uh, during that time, uh, where you know the left could have definitely. Uh, done more or pushed harder for uh, some sort of system, you know, it's just one thing. Yeah, uh, it's important to make sure people have a place to stay during a deadly pandemic, but the opportunity to be able to push for like a nationalized system of uh, universal housing. So there's at least some place for each human being in this country to sleep in, uh, you know, we kind of lost that chance. Uh, and though uh, the politics today and what well, last August are still, were and still are very divisive, uh, we, the Democrats, at least the left, are the ones that have most of the power. And so that was like one instance where uh, like the left's kind of like, <laughs> we had the power in that situation to the point where the Supreme Court was making extensions for, uh, you know, making sure people weren't evicted from their homes during uh, COVID-19. So 
uh, yeah, and then other than that, it was just sort of a, uh, it was a sign of uh, how powerful one uh, Congress member can be if they speak truth to power. So in a more optimistic perspective, that's something that can be taken from it. It also shows the power that, you know, kind of uh, speaking up when some people are remaining silent during an important issue how effective and powerful that can actually be. Because if we had had, you know, 10 or 20 Cori Bushes instead of just Cori Bush, uh, kudos to her, you know, we might have seen uh, the development of something more uh, concrete than just an extension of, you know, an eviction moratorium during COVID-19. So, uh, I mean, as far as strategy is concerned, it was pretty impressive and it's definitely something uh, that we should take as a, a lesson and an example of moving forward, especially when we are the ones in power of every branch except the judicial branch. Uh, so moving, moving on, uh, we're gonna cover universal basic income. So universal basic income it would basically be sort of uh, what we saw during uh, first the Trump administration and then the Biden administration having 800, 1200, $1,600, uh, $2,000 checks go to every single American. And the reason why it's important uh, that it's universal is that whether you're making $700 a year or $700 million a year, you're still receiving that money. It's not considered a handout. It's considered something that everybody gets. You know, everybody, you don't have to take it. You don't have to get it. And I will cover, we'll cover the people who, who didn't get it, which ironically enough were the unhoused and the people, you know, the, pe the homeless and people who needed it most were the ones who it was most difficult uh, to get uh, or to receive that payment, those payments. Uh, but anyway, just uh, the effectiveness of not being able to say that it is, although it is a social, sort of a social program, or it would be a social program, it's something that everyone gets. So it would be a really similar to a social security uh, where everyone gets something out of it. You know, you don't have to take it, you don't have to get it. But everybody gets it, you know? So uh, the main point of that is just the, uh, like, just we're living in a time of massive wealth inequality. And to close that gap, we need to do something that's universal, that doesn't pit one class against the other. Uh, so, you know, a lot of uh, middle class people, especially upper middle class people, who, you know, are higher earners, they're in a higher income bracket, higher tax bracket, usually more educated, college educated. Uh, they're going to 
more likely than not have a perspective of well i earned my and i earned my way into this i you know i went to college i got degrees i put my uh work in this and that and it just draws more of a divide between you know there, there's way more in common between people in poverty and upper middle class people than there are between upper middle class people and the top one tenth of one percent uh and the billionaires and multi-billionaires of this country uh so it, at the end of the day it just kind of pits the top 10 percent or you know even top 20 percent against the bottom 90 percent or bottom 80 percent uh when we all know that the real issue is wealth disparity um you know uh the richest and most powerful corporations uh not paying their taxes using every tax loophole imaginable uh stashing money overseas and then threatening politicians or government officials with uh with sort of uh I'm not going to run business in this state or in this country if you raise taxes on me. Where, and this is something that people forget, but even you know, in the early 30s, 40s, less than 100 years ago, the top marginal tax rate for quite a long time was up to 90%. Uh, whereas now, especially since the Reagan revolution has been kind of floating anywhere between uh, 30 and 45%. Uh, so, it, you know, it's uh, great for quarterly profits sometimes to, uh, you know, have some of these tax breaks at the end of the day. Um, it's completely decimated the working class of this country, uh, the working poor, and even eliminated the middle class, almost eliminated the middle class. Uh, and so what we really need to do is get organized and uh, realize that the problem is uh, a combination of uh, different, uh, different issues regarding money and politics, um, regarding uh, just corruption uh, on the highest levels of government. Uh, you know, wealthy com campaign contributors and just the duopoly in general. Uh, we just have a hyper-partisanship that uh, has really never been worse than it is today <laughs> in American history, I would argue. And that's why so many people, uh, although there's lately been a slight increase for the Republican Party, uh, there has been a lot of Americans leaving both the Democratic and the Republican Party uh, for a number of reasons. And the majority of Americans identify as independents. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of room for a third party or for uh, you know, an independent candidate or an independent movement, which we've already seen, you know, throughout the last 10 years uh, to really take hold 
and uh, actually gain traction and gain power in the United States. And that's really what we need to see. Uh, you saw it with, uh, like on the more conservative side, you definitely saw it with more of like a libertarian candidate in the uh, early 2010s, or like early uh, 2010s, late 2000s, with like sort of a Ron Paul style candidate, which isn't uh, my cup of tea necessarily. <laughs> Uh, and then you definitely saw it at the, on the left with uh, Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008 and saw that manifest. Um, uh, definitely saw it on the left with Occupy and uh, with a possible challenge to uh, the presidency by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders in 2012 and then eventually uh, the movement uh, that we would see from him in his presidential run in 2016, where he won 22 contests. Uh, so at the end of the day, and we're still seeing today, it's just we don't really have a standard there. Uh, as uh, you know, we 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 people are disaffected on both sides. Uh, independents outnumber Democrats. And Republicans, uh, Biden's approval rating is much lower than I think even anyone on the left had expected uh, after his victory against Trump in 2020. And uh, it's just not sustainable. The system is not sustainable. And I think I'm not the only person who believes that, uh, you know, the establishment didn't really get the message in 2016. That's why we ended up with uh, a Trump presidency for uh, four years and a generation of judicial appointments, including three Supreme Court appointments that will forever change the landscape of uh, law in the United States for, an, for a generation, for generations. Uh, it's just, it's embarrassing. And um, in my view, it's embarrassing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just to see such a, uh, just a stark contrast in, uh, in governance between, uh, you know, what the establishment and Biden, who is a career, uh, uh, a, a career politician in Washington and has been a senator since his late 20s and uh, served in Washington for a very long time compared to uh, sort of like a Donald Trump outsider. And then seeing the general public sort of disapprove of both of them. So it means we need an alternative option, in my view. Uh, an alternative uh, movement and an effective movement uh, that can really make a difference. Because with the two-party duopoly and the uh, sort of, I just want to say, the word I'm looking for is... Um, Sorry, give me a second. 
I might have to edit this later. And the word that I'm looking for is sort of, uh, people are just used to this. And it's just not something that any person should just, you know, be okay with. It's something that when the majority of Americans are disaffected and uh, don't approve of, uh, you know, the, the job someone's doing, just as much as, you know, Congress, Congress's approval ratings over the years, which have been historically low since the early 2000s, it means that, you know, we need real institutional and structural change, not platitudes, not words, not, uh, we'll see what we can do. It's, we need real action. And that's why young people came out in droves to vote for the Democratic nominee in 2020, Joe Biden, and to see the general public sort of uh, not necessarily approve of exactly uh, his performance and his uh, administration, I think says a lot about uh, the bubble that uh, politicians and uh, the wealthy and powerful uh, sort of live in in Washington. That that bubble of uh, you don't really understand how it works. You the public just doesn't get it. Uh, it's just kind of like you know to a point that that may have been true for one or two issues or for a small period of time, but for years, this has been sort of the same poll after poll. Americans don't feel like government works for them. And so it's time that uh, we put, in my view, faith in institutions and people in power that are actually going to, uh, you know, follow through with what they're running on and what they their constituents voted them in for um just introduce myself to <laughs> my name is quentin wilkie i'm 27 years old uh i was born and raised in north dakota for most of my life i'm currently a student at uh Community and Technical College in Minnesota. I organize for the school. I am the Student Senate Assistant. I'm on track to graduate next spring. I'll then be moving on to university. Uh, I have been serving in bartending in North Dakota for about six years. And most of that is due to uh, you know, there's no shame in serving or bartending at all, but the reason why I had to go down that path uh, was because of the uh, some personal and emotional issues and then having to drop out of school and, you know, make a living uh, two different times. So this is uh, my third time with school and I'm uh, really happy that I am uh, getting an education, although I do believe in uh, universal to universal uh, college for all and uh, tuition free uh, 
community and uh, community colleges and uh, four-year public colleges and universities as well, um, which is a common uh, a common thing in a lot of other industrialized nations. It's not anything crazy. Uh, so uh, basically, I've done a lot of organizing and. Uh, and uh, support and done a lot of uh, support for uh, left-wing candidates and progressive candidates uh, since I was 18, 19 years old. I cast my first vote for uh, Barack Obama in 2012, a few days after I turned 18. I you know, was familiar enough with the landscape of politics to know that he was someone who supported LGBTQ rights and, you know, was a young person when he won the presidency in 2008, which was very inspiring to me at the time. Uh, but as I delved deeper into leftist politics, I would realize, you know, how actually moderate, especially in a second term, uh, that he was. So uh, anyway, uh, it's made me even more passionate. And that's someone who's caucus in the state of North Dakota in both 2016 and 2020 for Senator Sanders. I'm very passionate about left-wing politics and just haven't been able to get uh, as engaged as I've, as I've wanted to be because of my occupation as a server and bartender full-time for so long. Uh, there was just a lot of... Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to be able to say and do uh, exactly what I wanted, um, especially regarding pro progressive politics and uh, leftist points of view. And uh, I just decided that I need to start, you know, having an outlet for this stuff. So that is sort of my intention with this podcast. And I, you know, you got to start somewhere. So uh, I uh, am looking forward to having discussions about uh, important issues, not only like on our on the local level here. For example, uh, the new ballot initiative, getting signatures in the state of North Dakota so we can get recreational on the ballot in 2022, uh, which failed by uh, a 20 point margin in 2018. Uh, however, we did have a medicinal marijuana measure pass two years prior to that. Uh, so there definitely is a, um, there's definitely an area for, uh, you know, marijuana and cannabis legalization. Uh, there's a pathway for that to be able to become a reality in North Dakota. And uh, so cover, we're going to cover things like that. And then also, you know, things on the national level. Uh, including, uh, you know, raising the minimum wage, issues like uh, Medicare for all and universal health care, things like important issues like, uh, you know, criminal justice reform, uh, just the... Uh, the pathway to uh, a Green New Deal, uh, which is not just a green dream, but an economic necessity 
that the world and this country needs in more ways than one. And uh, on top of all that, just uh, discussing the issues that don't necessarily get covered in corporate media or, uh, you know, just things where I can't tell you how many times I've brought up some issues to people and, you know, they just didn't know or, you know, they've never heard about that. And it's just because there's such a toxic sort of... uh, there's a toxic sort of uh, feeling that comes with uh, talking about politics, especially today where it's become so, uh, it's, people get in, there's physical fights going on in public places because of, uh, you know, the views of one one versus the other, whether it be, you know, immigration or, uh, you know, other controversial issues. And we kind of live in a world where the media almost, at least the corporate media, sort of feeds on that divisiveness just by design, the 24-hour news cycle. And we end up not getting much relevant, important information and news that the American people need to hear, or at least somewhat used to get, uh, like in the, the mid-1900s or even the, uh, you know, 1960s, 1970s. And we've just seen a, all these conglomerates, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, print or uh, digital media sort of uh, structure around uh, three or four different corporations that pretty much own everything that we see in here today. Uh, and we just see more and more monopolization uh, in so many different areas of business and media and uh, it just is uh, not not healthy for anybody, let alone Americans. And it's just not healthy uh, for uh, especially young people to be consuming uh, so much information that, uh, you know, you spend so much time on one thing, but then you're really ignoring so much other information because it's not good. It's not uh, getting a lot of viewers. Whereas, especially when we're dealing with the corporate media, the mo- the majority of corporate uh, media viewers are between the ages of fifty five and eighty. So, I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not really effective when we're talking about you know getting the truth out about different issues, regardless of what side of the political, excuse me, political spectrum you're on. Uh, So these are some of the things that I'm passionate about. Uh, I really am excited to have discussions about uh, local issues, state level issues, uh, national issues, and also uh, international and uh, global issues that uh, 
uh, are important that may uh, not get covered or at least not get covered as often as the, you know, uh, as often as I would like and as often as I'm sure a lot of other people would like. Uh, so another thing that I want to talk about the next uh, section that I want to discuss is the issue of right-wing legislatures in uh, red states. Collectively, sort of having this discussion and sort of battle against uh, critical race theory. So right now I have uh, an article on Ed Week basically defining uh, critical race theory as, uh, you know, an, a way of understanding how racism has shaped public policy, public policy um, or having that discussion about whether or not it's uh, divisive that pits people against one another, uh, which really, that's it's not the case. So really what critical race theory talks about, although that's become a buzzword, <laughs> is the reality of systemic and institutionalized racism in the United States, which is factually true just because of our history uh, of slavery and also the extermination of uh, indigenous peoples uh, for their land. So what that means is what critical race theory covers when we're talking about teaching this in schools is teaching that, yes, even today, in 2022, racism exists. And whether you think it does or it doesn't, it still exists because systemic and institutionalized racism is ingrained in the institutions and systems that we use today in a Western culture in America every day. Regardless if you want to accept it or not, it's there. So what this kind of uh, faux outrage on the right wing about critical race theory uh, people being up in arms about it being taught is so ridiculous in so many different ways. And it's even more reason uh, to just understand that racism is a real thing, that critical race theory is not, <laughs> it's not a theory, it's, it's factual. So when we're talking about CRT, it's based on the premise of real things that happened and not erasing history. So when we have right-wing states like Texas taking, uh, covering the Trail of Tears as if it was uh, some sort of, uh, you know, so something so insignificant that had no effect on, uh, you know, how things are today is just absolutely preposterous. And it's just really disappointing. I think it's actually disgusting the way that 
uh, right-wing politicians and especially GOP members on the state level have just like sort of just gone along with it or gone along with whatever their right-wing donors or their Koch brothers have been telling them to say or support, which is nothing new by any means on the right, especially with the GOP for the most part. Uh, just no one really that's willing to stand up or even talk about what it means unless it's just some sort of right-wing talking point that they heard or uh, on Fox News or read in some, uh, you know, uh, right-wing right wing article somewhere. So that discussion needs to be had more, and it's really just making the divide between uh, the right and left and Americans even greater than uh, it would be than just kind of discussing discussing the issue about racism in general instead of pretending like it's not there or that you know the fact of systemic racism and poverty and uh, institutional racism and discrimination all over this country uh, that still exists and we know this because of several studies including as one of my favorites is white people and black people using marijuana at the same rate, but black people being incarcerated and being charged four times as much as a white person. So that is one example of systemic and institutionalized racism. And if you think that it's anything else, you are just not educated on the reality of racism, period. Uh, so in a, in a state like North Dakota, we've had educators, we've had uh, superintendents in more rural areas come out talking about CRT and that, you know, don't quote me here, but that it's an abomination. Uh, and, you know, other sort of uh, outrage on the right, Talk, just not not even confronting racism, systemic racism, racism and institutionalized racism at all. Just saying that it's you know some sort of left wing conspiracy and it's uh, an issue that's used to pit one against the other. When in reality, it's actually the opposite. You know, it's realizing where we are right now. The progress that we've made and understanding that there's still uh, a lot of issues, problems, and work to be done uh, in, uh, you know, making sure that equality and uh, people of color and other minorities are, you know, given the same opportunities as their white counterparts. So... Uh, as an example, since I'm from North Dakota, born and raised, uh, in mid-November, uh, the North Dakota Senate banned teaching critical race theory in schools, though the action, you know, the action was preemptive. Uh, so they voted in a 38 to nine uh, vote to approve the bill banning teaching of critical race theory in schools. Uh, and so I'm citing Newsweek here. Uh, but basically, 
what the article states is, you know, discusses CRT a little bit, which calls for America's past and present to be regarded through the lens of racism. Uh, And some parents and lawmakers, they mentioned, uh, you know, even decreed the potential teaching of the concept in schools as an attempt to indoctrinate children. Um, And the... You know, dealing with uh, politics in North Dakota on the grassroots level, I know a lot of teachers. I've met a lot of teachers. And no no schools require teachers to cover critical race theory in any class, no matter what grade you're in. Um, so <laughs> they listed a poll here. Uh, from NBC that basically said uh, the Association of American Educators, which is a nonpartisan professional uh, organization for teachers, uh, polled that 96% of the roughly 1,100 respondents uh, were not required to teach critical race theory in classrooms. and in the, in the, of the respondents, only 45% said teachers should be given the option uh, to include CRT in their curriculums. So, <laughs> the problem is that, number one, we just have a lot of our, of our politicians on the state level that are not in touch with, uh, with North Dakotans in general. And... Uh, we saw it a lot in uh, 2016 when uh, medicinal marijuana did pass by ballot measure, which many uh, many established state senators and representatives did not see coming. Uh, but the people spoke, and I believe it was almost a, by a 60, 60% margin, so it's 20%. Uh, difference. I mean, overwhelmingly, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. Uh, North Dakotans uh, overwhelmingly voted to legalize marijuana medicinally in the state. And the politicians have just been dragging their feet. Many of them even came out uh, to kind of speak about their opposition towards it, even though, you know, in any other instance, when something is passed by ballot measure, by popular vote of the people, uh, you know, it's rarely treated that way. Uh, so what we're seeing too is just more of a right-wing takeover of our legislatures and red states. And I don't want to generalize too much because obviously every state is different, has their own problems and has their own, uh, you know, issues. But for the most part, especially for the GOP on the state levels and the federal levels, has been pretty much completely taken over by big money and corporate donors and uh, right-wing ideologues. Uh, so it's important when you know the majority of, uh, of voters in the state come out and vote for something, uh, and there's so much pushback from uh, you know some of these lawmakers that there's a real uh, there's a real sort of uh, 
że... God, I can't think of the word, excuse me. There's just a... sense of... Uh, it just basically out or underlines how out of touch, uh, really, lawmakers, even on the state level, are with their constituents when they come out and, do and say things like this. So, back to the topic of critical race theory. Uh, we, uh, we hereby, uh, quoted here by Republican State Senator Donald Shable, which, you know, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, he helped them move the bill on North Dakota Senate floor, uh, and he's quoted as saying that the CRT ban was meant to, quote, to try and make sure that it doesn't come to our schools, end quote. As if critical race theory and teaching about systemic and institutionalized racism, which is a reality and is divisive in no shape or form, uh, as if it's some, like, disease. Uh, so really bizarre, really disheartening, really just quite disgusting, and really disrespectful towards educators in the state. Uh, not any, you know, as a, as a state that values, uh, you know, uh, family values. I hope we would just treat our educators and our teachers in this state with a little bit more respect uh, than making assumptions about what they're teaching, how they're teaching, and as if they're indoctrinating our young people and young students with some sort of ideas that, uh, you know, aren't real, aren't accurate, aren't uh, important. There was no teachers and educators going out, of, going out of their way to teach critical race theory in this state. And you saw in this state and many others who have right-wing majorities in either their state houses or, or state senates come out with similar legislation like this. Uh, so it's just a bunch of full outrage. It's really just a distraction from the real issues um, and uh, just understanding at the end of the day, that, and I don't want to be too harsh here, but it is just absolutely ridiculous that, uh, you know, this ban actually made it to the governor's desk in the first place. So, uh, it's just, uh, just disgusting. Just disturbing. Uh, just also just makes me embarrassed to be from this state. Uh, you know, our population is mostly mostly white, but we have a high high indigenous population as far as uh, reservations and uh, things like that are concerned. It's just uh, really uh, shows you just exactly 
what's wrong with uh, legislatures all over this country, especially those that are controlled by GOP and right-wing majorities. Uh, you know, and I don't even, you know, you can argue that's a partisan view or a, a partisan perspective, but at the end of the day, uh, to go, be going around saying that uh, teaching systemic, teaching about systemic and institutionalized racism uh, is some sort of indoctrination effort by uh, the quote far left <laughs> is just uh, absolutely appalling and just really disingenuous to uh, educators, not only in North Dakota, but all over the world and in this country. Uh, so uh, moving on, let's discuss uh, the war on drugs, the decriminalization of marijuana in many states, including uh, North Dakota, if I am not mistaken, and um, also the uh, decrimin decriminalization of all drugs and how uh, that sort of policy actually would benefit uh, Americans uh, of every tax bracket and wherever part, whatever part of America you come from. Uh, and it would actually, uh, you know, put us a step ahead and a step forward as far as recognizing uh, the actual issues that are plaguing our society rather than just uh, blaming uh, everything on uh, drugs, which has been a common sort of political maneuver, uh, especially on the right, and and by uh, many Democrats over the last uh, three to four decades. So, um, basically, since Nixon and the creation of the federal federally controlled substance act. Uh, there's been a concerted effort uh, to basically criminalize drugs as if uh, that is uh, what's uh, ruining uh, the fabric of society in America, which was uh, just sort of a uh, right-wing uh, a right-wing sort of uh, a right-wing idea that gained popularity among the general public, uh, especially after, um, you know, seeing sort of that generation of uh, uh, the civil rights, uh, the civil rights movement, and uh, you know, free love and a lot of uh, recreational drug use, especially. Uh, in the 50s and 60s and was just a direct reaction to uh, working class people and minorities gaining rights that they didn't have before and sort of like the structure of uh, the ruling class uh, sort of losing power or at least uh, changing the uh, there were values that are that were kind of being changed, and things that weren't uh, that that used to not be allowed to be said that were being acceptable and accepted, 
for for such a long time and topics that you know used to be really taboo that were finally uh you know able to be discussed and talked about uh and that backlash you saw after you know desegregating schools and uh you know people sort of exploring their themselves as far as uh spiritual uh spirituality and spiritual beliefs is concerned that wasn't uh traditional in the sense of uh you know like a traditional christian families uh lifestyle or beliefs or a traditional uh you know uh, white person's belief and uh you know in a lot of ways our society has become a lot more accepting but that that backlash still is ingrained in our government on the federal level and has seeped through on the state and local levels for many years and obviously we're kind of breaking through uh that sort of uh toxic uh these toxic uh laws and uh the so-called war on drugs with statewide legalization of marijuana in uh many states over the last couple decades and then uh either having recreational or medicinal marijuana legalized in over 30 states now uh so you're seeing a real movement towards the decriminalization of substance use which at its core uh you know substance abuse isn't the issue it's more so a uh side effect of inadequate health care in america it's a side effect of institutionalized and systemic uh discrimination not only by race or orientation or gender identity but by class as you've seen the middle class uh shrink significantly over the last uh 40 years and seeing uh neoliberals and neoconservatives over the last 30 or 40 years just continue to uh consolidate power among uh the wealthiest and most powerful uh people around us uh and sort of accepting that culture of uh the haves and have nots and it just being something that we all just need to uh accept or get used to instead of really understanding that a lot of the economic cultural and uh other issues that face this country are directly because of poor public policy and the fact that public opinion still almost has no effect on public policy today. Uh so it's just a reminder that especially today uh that we have a lot of work to do not only to put faith back in to our institutions uh but just to correct all of the damage that uh really poor public policy especially since the 70s has had on Americans, American families uh of you know every type so um 
the coin, like the charm was coined by Nixon. I'm not going to teach you a history lesson. You guys can do your own research. Uh, but in 1971, uh, he gave a press conference to the media uh, and uh, declared drug abuse, quote, public en enemy number one. <laughs> uh, so it was just sort of a uh, power grab and a power grab by a very paranoid president. Uh, so, the damage that it's done has predominantly affected people of color and, uh, low-income, poor, and, uh, work, like, working-class people, and, uh, as far as drug use is concerned, the most wealthy and powerful people among us, for the most part, receive almost no sort of criminal or legal uh, consequences as far as any sort of drug use is concerned. Uh, whereas the guy with $2 in his pocket who's walking around with a couple grams of weed uh, could have been put away for life for decades for the crime of having a plant on him. And, you know, I'm generalizing here, uh, but the amount of damage, money, and wasteful spending, <laughs> something conservatives and right-wing, uh, people with right-wing views like to talk about, that has been wasted on the war on drugs in the last 40 years is absolutely disturbing. And not only is it disturbing, it's also just wrong. It has destroyed families. It has ruined people's lives. And the debate that a lot of people are having right now, too, is even just the discussion of the difference between uh, crack powder uh, and cocaine. And I can't remember the exact article that I was reading, but uh, it's basically the difference of uh, getting in any sort of, uh, you know, legal or criminal uh, trouble because of this stuff is a 20 to 1 difference. So while uh, wealthy white people and rich neighborhoods can snort whatever they want up their nose if it's coke, uh, the same people who are cooking crack on the stove, which is the exact same drug, the exact same chemical compound, uh, you have a 20 times higher likelihood of uh, being arrested and locked up than, uh, you know, another, another person using cocaine, which is just shows you the difference of uh, the react, the difference that uh, one group gets treated versus another and the realities of systemic uh, racism, which kind of ties into the discussion of critical race theory uh, in the first place. Um, so we're finally seeing some progress with that, and then we're obviously seeing with uh, cities like Denver and some other progressive cities and progressive states sort of start to legalize uh, psychedelics, and then also seeing on the federal level, finally some green lights for uh, psychedelic uh, 
trials to help uh, with um, with issues like PTSD, which uh, is really significant, especially for uh, people that served uh, in the military and uh, came back with, uh, you know, a really, really bad case of PTSD uh, for whatever reason. And um, the epidemic of them, uh, many of them taking their own lives uh, because they think that there is no other way to go on. Um, and the trials, which you know, could have been performed 20, 30 years ago had we not had uh, such horrible public policy on the federal level, uh, the uh, Controlled Substances Act, um, just showing how damaging that has been, and also just the sort of uh, the sort of roadblocks that scientists in this country and researchers in this country face when they're trying to, uh, you know, come come up with solutions and discover and uh, invent uh, treatments for people with not only physical ailments but mental ailments that can sometimes end up deadly. And we all know uh, that, and especially America, and we learned this with alcohol, that prohibition does not work. And when we prohibit a, a substance like alcohol or any other substance, it has the opposite effect and actually creates a black market. And so it doesn't only damage society as a whole, it just uh, creates a, a uh, black market that can't be controlled or regulated. So you're not only hurting faith in our institutions by instituting measures and enforcing measures uh, that hurt so many people and that many people ignore anyway, or at least have to uh, do illegally and become engaged in some sort of criminal activity. Uh, but you're also just, uh, you know, wasting time, wasting money, wasting energy on a lot of time, money, and energy that could be placed in uh, other places. So things like universal health care, things like uh, universal basic income, things like housing for all policies and ideas that have been presented in Congress on the federal level that would really benefit the American people and definitely have a potential in the future to be passed and become law. Uh, but there is going to be uh, especially a, a backlash and a fight against uh, you know, the powers that be, the ultra-wealthy, and uh, people who, uh, you know, may be losing money or other sort of uh, selfish, uh, greedy uh, people or groups that will do anything in their power to continue existing and can only exist in a world where things like substances that could actually help people if they were regulated and legalized, um, watching them fight 
uh, as hard as they can to make sure that uh, the status quo remains as is. Uh, so, and that's by design. So we're also going to talk about abortion rights. So a few weeks ago, I don't have the exact date, but there was a draft leaked. Apparently from the um, from the Supreme Court. Um, I haven't read much into it, but I do understand that with the conservative majority, six to three, uh, and that's not surprising, uh, but many of those uh, justices who were sworn in uh, did say on the record that uh, Roe versus Wade is the law of the land and would have no intention of or of uh, you know overturning it or any sort of desire to overturn it uh, which now clearly whatever however you really want to speculate it speculate at it it they're clearly uh, you know completely contradicting what most of them uh, swore about on, on the record. Uh, so it's really disappointing. Uh, Roe versus Wade needs to be codified. It is a human right. And I personally, as a queer person, I'd feel a hell of a lot stronger if I, was, if I had a uterus, which I do not. However, I feel really, it feels really wrong that a bunch of old white guys who never experienced uh sort of sort of a i mean have never experienced having a a pregnancy not even necessarily an unwanted pregnancy but a pregnancy that could be life-threatening or a uh, pregnancy that was, uh, you know, uh, created by an instance of rape that a bunch of old white guys who will never understand what it's like to have a uterus or be a pregnant person are going to have any say in what a woman in this country in 2022 does with their own body. So it's just underlining that uh, core value of America regarding choice. You don't have to agree with abortion. You don't even have to like abortion. You don't even have to approve of anyone else getting an abortion. But you cannot make someone else do something that they don't want to do. You, who is not this other person, does not get to tell them what to do with their own body. Because in any other instance, that shit would not fly. 
And so it's really frustrating, and especially a lot of right-wingers have been brainwashed into uh, believing that that is okay, that that's acceptable in any form, and that in the year 2022, we're still having this discussion. I believe in a woman's right to abortion. So does the majority of Americans. And religion and your religious beliefs have no place in your public policy. Period. So, uh, you know, it's one thing for someone who it's really not going to affect directly to be able to kind of get upset and mad about this. Uh, but it's more of like, it's really just sad and depressing. Uh, you know, and I really, I feel sad about people who this is actually going to affect who, you know, have to drive six, eight, ten hours to a different state just to be able to get the care that they need or to have to go through a black market, which we all know what happens when we start prohibiting something. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, or abortion, it's still going to occur. And to make sure that it happens in the safest way possible, it needs to be regulated and done in a professional way. Are people still going to go out and use that black market? Yeah, probably. But the likelihood of someone going and going out on the street to do this or perform this procedure or get this substance is going to be a lot less likely if there's a regulated way to do it. And that's just common sense. It doesn't matter how strongly you feel about something. You know, unless, I mean, I get, I get a murder, you know? That's what we have a criminal justice system for. I get, you know, domestic violence. I understand rape. I understand uh, theft of property and damaging people, other people's property. That being brought to a court of law to be able to, you know, find justice and uh, things of that nature. But in the year 2022, we're still having this conversation about women having the right to control their own bodies. It is a fucking embarrassment. Moving on. I could go more into it. But I really don't feel like it. And we will discuss it a hell of a lot more in further episodes. Uh, so... Let's just talk about LGBTQ rights. And I'm a queer person, and I identify as bisexual and non-binary, so this hits home a little bit for me. And we're saying uh, issues like even the possibility of seeing Roe versus Wade being overturned with something else or some other, some other decision. The first thing that comes to mind for me is like my right to be able to marry another binary person or 
you know, some another queer person, or just, you know, the fact that marriage is not strictly between a man and a woman. And the Supreme Court upholded that view in 2013. And just the most bizarre thing about it all is just that it like directly goes against public opinion. You know what I mean? I just don't understand how we're even having this conversation. When the majority of Americans are okay with gay marriage. They're okay with... Uh, transgender people you know we still have a long way to go as far as uh equality is concerned but we're really talking we're really talking about moving backwards now it's uh really just disheartening in a lot of ways And the special thing about uh, gay marriage is that it was put in, it was upheld basically by the Supreme Court. So to now kind of see the majority turn so much towards the conservative end, and then like them uh, having the power to be able to even have a draft of uh, overturning Roe versus Wade makes you wonder, like, what else are they going to do next? Is the issue of gay marriage going to be discussed? Is the potential of... Uh, uh, a man and another man and a woman and another woman or another transgender person or person outside the gender binary having the same rights as any other American, is that at risk? Because it feels like it's at risk. It feels like it's at risk. Uh, when abortion and Roe versus Wade is something that's been codified, uh, sorry, excuse me, it has not been codified. It must be codified. <laughs> it should be codified. And that happening in, if I'm not mistaken, 1973. And then something like gay marriage, which I believe was upheld in 2013, you know, less than a decade ago. So, uh, in June of 2013, the Supreme Court ruled that Section 3 of uh, the of DOMA is unconstitutional. 
and that the government cannot discriminate against married lesbian and gay couples for the purposes of determining determining federal benefits and protections. So, TLDR, gay marriage was legalized federally. Um, yeah, so when we're seeing something like abortion and things being drafted about overturning that, uh, my response is someone who is actually, you know, I'm directly not affected by an abortion ban of any kind because I don't have a uterus. My family is, my friends are, people I care about, human beings that I care about are. But I'm not. I am affected by the 2013 decision. I am affected, uh, you know, as a queer person to be able to uh, marry who I want and be treated the same as anybody else. So it's really just kind of making you like, with young people as the most progressive generation that we've ever seen, having to witness these horrors. Yeah, I'm going to say it. These horrors, this is horrific. Talking about abortion bans. Talking about fucking defunding Planned Parenthood for the last six years. Seeing the religious right do anything in their power to make sure that women do not have access to abortion. It's fucking disgusting. I don't care what your religious beliefs are. That is a constitutional right. The right to abortion is a constitutional right. So it's a crazy time we're living in in 2022. Uh, this is my uh, first podcast pilot. So I'm sure I still have a lot of tweaking to do and some work to do as far as editing and, uh, you know, uh, building a real you know, audience, but a start of a start. I uh, plan on having a uh, YouTube channel that will uh, post weekly my podcast. I eventually will have uh, some more digital and... Um, some more uh, graphics and designs as far as the podcast of Morning Q goes. Uh, but for now, we're just using uh, what we have. So really, anything can happen at this point. And I'm really looking forward to the uh, discussions that are going to have had, that we're going to have on this show. Uh, the... Uh, different perspectives that we're going to uh, discuss on Morning Q. And 
you know, also just bring to light uh, a different perspective as far as a local, uh, a local style, uh, you know, podcast is concerned also discussing uh, international, national, and some other state level issues that are uh, important, but do not get nearly enough coverage in the 24-hour news cycle. Um, so you can follow my YouTube channel. It is Morning or Morning Q And I look forward to uh, posting on some other uh, social media platforms uh, that I still have yet to um, really decide on whether I uh, continue the podcast with a Patreon account in combination with my YouTube uh, or uh, utilizing Rockfin, uh, making a new Twitter. Uh, that'll all sort of be developing throughout the summer of 2022 as we kind of cover um, all sides of uh, politics and uh, having different discussions of issues uh, from a leftist point of view and also including uh, others with a different point of view. So thank you for listening. Uh, I look forward to getting uh, to know the audience and before that, actually creating an audience. And uh, thank you for listening. And I look forward to continuing the show. Have a great rest of your day.